The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, I'm going to take something of a contrarian view here. We are now about three weeks away from the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit. You can tell that the media coverage is starting to ramp up, both in Africa and in China. Anticipation is starting to build up. And of course, the big question that everybody has is how much money are the Chinese going to unveil? What's going to be the headline? Is it going to be 60 billion, 70 billion, 80 billion? Huge amounts of money. Now, what makes it interesting is that at this moment in history, This conference is coming at an incredibly sensitive time, both for China and particularly for Xi Jinping, the Chinese president. Xi Jinping, on a good day, on a good day, there's a saying that when he wakes up, has 50 things he has to do to make sure that the wheels don't come off the Chinese wagon. To keep this country running, 1.3 billion people, a massive country, a massive economy, incredibly complex. On a good day, it's super hard. Add on to that the fact that now he's in a, I think we can call it a trade war. I mean, it's more than a conflict. We're actually in a trade war with between China and the United States. Um, The People's Bank of China, the central bank, is spending a huge amount of money to prop up the Chinese currency, the yuan. The housing market here is teetering on a pile of debt. I mean, people spend a huge amount of money to buy an apartment. And they're taking out massive loans to do that. State-owned enterprises here are operating at overcapacity. I mean, that's been the big problem with the steel industry. One thing that Donald Trump has zeroed in on is the fact that the Chinese produce an inordinate amount of steel and sell it below market rate around the world. It's been a big problem. And then currency outflows are up again. So huge amounts of Chinese yuan are leaving the country to go invest in other countries and to get out because people don't have faith that the economy here will sustain itself. So add all of that together, and it creates a lot of anxiety. And Kobus, I guess my question is, is that that's what Chinese leaders are focusing on right now. And so now in Africa, it's going to be focused on FOCAC, and all of these leaders, 50 leaders, will be coming to Beijing on September 2nd, I think it is. And really, is this the best time for this kind of thing? I mean, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, I think to a large extent, they, they had very little maneuverability because the time, um, the time for the FOCAC summit, it, it happens every three years and it always happens roughly at the same time of the year, late in the second half of the year. And so, so these dates were set up a while ago. And I think in a way it would have been a lot more disruptive and damaging to suddenly cancel it rather than to just keep going with it. So in the second place, you know, a lot of a lot of the questions that a lot of the problems that, that you raise are problems of, of crises of this particular moment. But the China-Africa relationship, I think, runs on a somewhat different timeline. You know, so, so China is playing a very long game, I think, with Africa. And, and, and part of that long game is maintaining these relationships across years and years and years. 
So, um, so you know, I, I can imagine that to, to a large extent, not having FOCAC now would have been more troublesome than actually having it. Interesting. Yeah. I think you make a good point on the on the timing of it. I guess I'm just wondering out loud, and I'm playing the devil's advocate here. I don't necessarily believe what this is, but it just, it does feel that Africa oftentimes in the press, at least, defines itself as having a very strong narrative that China needs us. And here in China, there's oftentimes a kind of view of Africa as something extraneous. It's the Belt and Road. It's a, it's kind of a fringe thing. It's not that important. And so that's why in some ways FOCAC is a reassertion of the fact that Africa is important to China. And I guess I'm just wondering, will we, will, you know, Li Keqiang, the prime minister and, and, and Xi Jinping, the president, will their, their hearts be in FOCAC when they have so much else to deal with? But let's talk a little bit today about the narrative and the story of FOCAC and why it's important and why it will probably continue to be important, even though the role of FOCAC will change in the coming, in the coming years. So in order to do that, we are inviting back an old friend of the program, PhD candidate Yushan Wu, who is uh, finishing up, I think just almost finished her PhD at Witts University in Johannesburg. She was formerly of the South African Institute of International Affairs, where you work now, Kobus. And now she's a research associate at the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University, a funder of this program. Uh, so full disclosure there. Yushan, welcome back to the program. Hi, Eric and Kobus. Good to speak to you guys again. Um, it is fantastic. And just, just one detail. Um, I think Yushen's PhD is with the University of Pretoria, right? I am yeah. sorry. My apologies. I just assumed that everything you do was with Vits. <laughs> no, I think it, it has been the case. So that's why I had to kind of change it up for a bit. <laughs> I, I, yes, I, I looked and at your bio right before and it was well. just Vits, 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 Vits. Okay, so <laughs> University of Pretoria, we got that out of the way. Yeah. Uh, just for those of you who aren't familiar with Hushan, she is, she's been doing China-Africa relations for a very, very long time. In fact, we talked with her several, several years ago about it. And so she's a great person to touch base with, again, on how does FOCAC fit within the broader narrative and, and the time that we're in now. So I laid out a case for why this isn't a great time for FOCAC. Kobus mentioned the fact that there is a different time frame. So there are some urgencies right now that the Chinese leadership is dealing with. It does mm -hmm. seem like to me there's a reorientation of the global trading system, uh, potentially that may be longer term than just this trade war. Uh, that will impact Africa. For example, just over the past week, China, in the month of August, announced that they stopped buying American oil. No oil shipments came from the United States to China, which was a first for a long time. And they started buying up more African oil to compensate for that. So again, these are very interesting kind of shifts that are happening. So on the long term, that actually may play in Africa's favor. So I'd like to kind of, let's start our discussion, Yushan, with your take on my contrarian view that I started the program on and why you think FOCAC is or is not important at this moment. Okay, sure. So, I mean, I think one one aspect that I was thinking about while you were, you know, raising these concerns is actually the fact that the last FOCAC, 2015, didn't seem that such a long time ago. I mean, you know, it feels like it was just yesterday. And you know, I think there were also similar concerns uh, when the FOCAC was held here in Johannesburg. If you remember, um, at that time, it was a whole lot of concerns about China's economic restructuring and whether China was going to focus more inward and what actually happened um, at, at the FOCAC when, you know, China made a whole lot of new different pledges and there were whole other areas of, of commitment. So I think that's interesting in itself. And sometimes we 
also forget that FOCAC itself is, although it happens every three years, I think it's also an evolving entity, especially the its focus areas. So we saw the FOCAC um, the last time emphasize China's commitment to the continent despite its um, you know, economic restructuring and, and domestic focus. And again, I think this time, while we see um, all these concerns or, or issues between the US and China, um, what is interesting is we also know that the BRICS summit just happened here in Johannesburg. And it was, again, a platform where China, South Africa and other leaders, because they did invite um, some African leader participants as well, was, again, their commitment to, you know, um, and not protectionism, um, globalization. And I think it was quite interesting that these platforms also become a space where countries reaffirm, I think, their positions in the world. To connect onto that, you know, so much of, of the the kind of optics of the FOCAC summit um, and of, of a lot of other Chinese work in, in the world is is China performing kind of friendliness and openness and, you know, a, a different form of globalization. So, you know, so, so all of the, the the messages that we've been hearing out of Beijing the whole year as, as all the time saying we're not like that other superpower that, you know, that the withdraws from multilateral organizations. We're all about multilateralism. We're all about open trade. Um, we try and embrace as many countries as possible. Um, and so, you know, this, you know, I, I think just so, so much of China's econo- like long-term economic um, fortunes rest on an open global trading system. And you know, so so I think at the moment it, it is using all of these different all of these different platforms to try and keep beaming that kind of message out. And Africa is a quite convenient one to to partner to do that with because Africa is the only kind of big regional grouping that recently recommitted itself to free trade with the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. So uh, while everyone else is trying to get themselves out of global markets, Africa is is kind of all in, you know, on 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 free trade. So, so I think just just visually the you know the, the the kind of spectacle of of China supporting that I think does send a message. Kobus, can I just you know just interrupt you very quickly? Yes, while China does in fact say that, I do think it's worth contextualizing a little bit of what their propaganda is on this front. They do support open markets and free trade only on their terms. Remember, if you want to come and invest in China, you have to play by China's rules. And that's, again, one of the legitimate criticisms of the Chinese trading system by Donald Trump and even the Europeans is that, you know, the state plays a very large role here in manufacturing and a lot of companies. You have to do joint ventures if you're in industries like automotive. You have to do technology transfers. So it's not necessarily free and open fair trading. So while they talk about that internationally to challenge Donald Trump, domestically they do sing by a different tune. That's very interesting and it's very true. And and but I, but I think from the African side, that Chinese approach is kind of the holy grail. Like I've I've heard these kind of glowing accounts of in in Africa among African development experts on how China managed to leverage the size of its market to to force 
first world, you know, companies to do these kind of technology transfers. Africa would love to do what China is doing. Um, and if, you know, kind of Africa, if Africa could kind of get itself together to negotiate as a, as a collective block, that I think is, is their ultimate dream. You know, is to, to have a similar situation where they're able to, able to play the kind of hardball that China plays with, with you know, kind of big American companies. So, so I think Africa sees that entire situation from a very kind of global south kind of place. Um, from a very different place, I think, than, than the global north. Um, Yushin, what do you think? So, yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, of course, there, there are individual interests involved. But then again, I think when we look at the, the FOCAC, and I mean, that's what I've been trying to study in the past while, is how, how the relationship has also evolved along these different platforms or, or FOCAC events, right? And I think while we might talk about China engaging for its own interests, um, and this is also in a paper that Quibus, myself and Chris Alden is, is writing, is looking at how the continent and I think its own environment and context is also shaping the way that China can engage it. So, for example, if we look at how China is increasingly engaging in the peace and security environment in Africa, um, you know, it might not have been its um, original purpose or interest, but it's increasingly had to also ensure that, you know, this relationship becomes more co-constituted. So I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is, again, if we look at the Belt and Road, and we've, I think we've spoken about this before, Quibus, is how, yes, before Africa wasn't necessarily involved or considered particularly part of the initiative. But the fact that we're also starting to see a lot more positive reception from African or African leaders also, you know, I think China also can't... Um, Africa almost becomes an example of, look, this, this initiative is working and it's positive because of this positive reception towards it. Eric, in... In your position in in China, um, how is the the global rollout of the Belt and Road being seen within China at the moment? There, you know, in you know, a lot of people are predicting that FOCAC is going to be one of the key that that um, the the Belt and Road will be a key theme of the FOCAC summit, and many people are predicting that um, that they're planning to essentially include the entire African continent into the Belt and Road. Um, how is the Belt? How popular is the Belt and Road at the moment on the ground in China? Well, there's two ways of looking at it. There is the kind of mainstream propaganda distribution of the Belt and Road messaging, and, and it's everywhere. You see it in marketing, you see it in the newspapers, you see it, I mean, and if you ask nine out of 10 people on the street, do they know what Belt and Road is? They do. They know generally what the concept is. When you start digging into it about the amounts of money that are being spent, potentially the waste, there starts to cut some cynicism that creeps into it. People are very, very aware here of how much money they spend overseas in one sense, that they don't like the concept of foreign aid any more than people in the United States like the concept of foreign aid. People think that, you know, there are a lot of domestic problems that need to be taken care of first in China. And that, that money should be spent here before it's spent overseas. And I think people associate Belt and Road with big spending and infrastructure. And there's been some reports of corruption along Belt and Road uh, and that the government's cracking down on that. That said, there's also a lot of uh, private sector marketing along Belt and Road. There are TV commercials in primetime showing, you know, camels and uh, Coca-Cola 
<laughs> and those are allusions and references to uh, to Belt and Road, which I think is absolutely fascinating to watch. Uh, you know, at the advertising agency that I work for, there was Belt and Road Day, where the clients came in and they were all different ways that, you know, you could build advertising campaigns around Belt and Road. And so I think it's very interesting how it's a big, serious deal. There's no two ways about it. People definitely take it seriously. The government is taking it seriously. This is something that is a very, very big deal. No, no two ways about it. Are people paying attention to FOCAC and Belt and Road? Eh, not really. I don't think many people are going to uh, to pay much attention to to what happens in three weeks here. It'll be another, you know, another. There's another summit in Beijing. Great. Um, you know, last month we had twenty three billion dollars that was given to to Arab states. That barely registered as news here. I mean, isn't that incredible that your government gives away twenty three billion dollars and it barely registers as news? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It's very revealing. Little it detail, is very revealing. Yeah. And, and that's in part because it's not because people are blasé about it. There's just a lot going on here right now. Headlines are dominated by the United States. There's a lot of domestic news. Uh, Tencent had a terrible earnings report last week. Uh, so there's a lot going on right now. And this, in order to register as news in this country, just like in the United States, you have to get above the clutter. And that's not easy to do. So, Yushan, let you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, the, you talked about African agency. So, I, OK, I'm going to step away from the beginning of my the program when I was channeling a very <laughs> negative kind of view. And I'm going to kind of express what I genuinely think. I genuinely <laughs> think that FOCAC is coming at a great time for Africa and for China because China now needs to find new markets for its goods. China needs to find new suppliers Again, the global economy is changing, and I think it's going to change forever. Never again will the Chinese be held hostage by the United States for $14 billion of soybeans. That will not happen <laughs> again. The, those contracts are never coming back to those Iowa farmers. I don't understand what the Americans think the end game is here, but it, they're never going to go back. They're not going to be made to feel vulnerable again. That screams opportunity for Nigerian soya farmers. God, if I was a venture capitalist right now, I would be saying, can you grow soybeans in Africa? Great. Grow soybeans right now and export it to China because you've got a built-in market. They will buy everything you can, you can take up. Brazil can only produce a third of the, of the demand for, from China. There's a huge amount of opportunity here. And I think if Africans are smart, they will come into the FOCAC and they will see what is the United States giving to them now that we can give them as well. So let's kind of turn it upside down now and talk about the positive side of it. And do you see that there is an opportunity right now that African states can take by virtue of the disruption that's going on in the global trade system because of Donald Trump and what's happening in the trade dispute? Yeah, I was just going to add that, you know, I mean, yes, we, we talked about FOCAC as this, you know, the idea that global symmetry is important in, in a globalized world, right? That it's not just going to meetings, but the very idea of hosting or organizing these kind of big gatherings is um, also sometimes an opportunity for a state to kind of say something about itself and express its own values and um, perceptions and its own ideas of how it's evolving in the world. So that's the one aspect that we're, we, you know, kind of discussed and you can look at the FOCAC in that way. But the other side is, it's also very practical, as, as you're saying, Eric. I mean, if you look at the last FOCAC and even the BRICS summit recently, those were both opportunities for Xi Jinping to meet um, with 
um, African countries on the sidelines um, and they, there was a whole lot of bilateral agreements. So, for example, in 2015, we saw Xi Jinping visit Zimbabwe, um, you know, undertake bilateral discussions with South Africa. More recently, we saw the BRICS, same thing, South Africa, Senegal, um, Rwanda. And I think, um, again, going back to 2015, I think it was the sidelines of the FOCAC where the agreement to to kind of establish China's, uh, is it the military base in Djibouti? It took place on the sidelines of the FOCAC. So there is also a very practical element to, I think, hosting these kind of events. Yeah, I think so. And, and it'll be very interesting to see what kind of side events or what kind of side agreements are made in this moment where they, you know, kind of there's so much, there's so much need to try and kind of reconfigure the global trade system. Um, you know, the, you know, I think, I think it's, it's, it's almost as if the, the world is only really waking up to the extent of American power now, you know, kind of now that, that, that power has become so disruptive in, in the, during the Obama era, the, the the massive extent of U.S. power in the world was just this kind of comforting, you know, foundation on which you could build other things. Um, now I think it's 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 we're in a very different place, and now the these kind of summits offer the opportunities for possibly more kind of wide ranging or you know far reaching um, agreements to be made, new kind of new groups to be created. Um, it'll be very interesting to see, you know, kind of what actually comes out of of the summit this time. Yeah, Kobus, let's pick up on that very quickly. And I think it's Ushan, you're very, you're raising an interesting point here. So if we've seen the past few summits that Donald Trump has attended, the G7 summit in Canada, uh, the NATO summit, and how the chemistry among the leaders was terrible. And you can see how the power of relationships really matters in international relations. And how, you know, the relationship between Angela Merkel and Donald Trump has deteriorated in part because of these summits. So the reverse can be true as well. And again, I think in, in many African cultures, probably if not all, they value relationships in a very similar way that the Chinese do, which is incredibly important. We as Americans oftentimes value transactions. You have something, I have something, let's sign a deal. That's our mutual interest. And I think it's a much more relationship-based type of system between China and Africa than in other parts of the world. So just as these summits have produced terrible outcomes in the West, you can also see the opportunity, Yushan, as you pointed out, the fact that it can be a point where lots of lots of things are accomplished, but outside of the summitry, just on, you know, leader to leader or minister to minister. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the one, I think, caveat that, uh, you know, we've kind of raised in this paper that we, we're currently trying to finalize um, is also, I think, the dynamics within the African continent itself, specifically the African Union. Um, you know, I, I'm sure you've heard of the, the African Union reforms that um, were, I think, introduced early last year. And the whole idea of kind of trying, um, you know, the proposal to restructure Africa's external partnerships was something that was raised. And there was this um, idea or suggestion of restructuring external partnerships so that Africa is represented by a selected few. For example, region, regional economic community heads, the African Union Commission, etc. And so rather than having the African continent and African leaders meeting, say, with Japan or China, that you would have less representation and a few speaking for 
for the rest. And, you know, it seems great. I mean, it seems positive in that there's always been calls for, you know, a common African voice. But then again, as as I think we mentioned, this will then, I think, impact on the optics of what FOCAC the symbolism of what FOCAC stands for. And also, it might also hamper the, you know, the, the opportunity for these bilateral agreements that take place on the sidelines. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of connecting onto that, I think there is something to be said for the messiness of FOCAC, actually, in the sense that it is this big spectacle of of full inclusion, you know. Um, the One of the problems, I think, with the... or that, that's been raised by in interviews that, that I did, um, both on the Chinese side and on the African side, is there's some concern that, that the, the, the streamlined uh, AU, um, the proposed, you know, approach proposed by the EU, um, while it is streamlined and a lot a lot more efficient, at the same time, it also excludes so many of the smaller players in Africa. Um, and I think it is exactly that, the, the kind of optics of no one is excluded, every single one, you know, kind of is included, no matter how small you are, like even, you know, that, that there's literally kind of worry about the fact that Swaziland still has, you know, you know, it still, you know, mm. isn't, doesn't have diplomatic relationships with China, and that like all of this work to try and pull Swaziland in as well. There is this kind of interesting, you know, kind of theater of inclusion that I think is, that is, that's an interesting thing in the global south generally, but it's particularly powerful in Africa because Africa is so used to being excluded. Um, and especially smaller African players are so used to be excluded. So, uh, you know, I think it, it, it to my mind, it, it plays, it, it, fits into a, a, a very long game that China's playing, you know, which, which to a certain extent also includes this, this idea that some of these poor countries might not be so poor in the future, um, you know, which, which I think draws from China's own experience of development. Um, Eric, am I being too, too kind of south-south kind of yeah. rose, rosy spectacles? Yes. Yes, there's no <laughs> doubt. I mean, I think you are channeling the 1960s Pan-Africanist dream that is, that. is as lucid today <laughs> as it was 50 years ago. And there's two things. There's two reasons why I don't think that will ever happen. Number one, Africa is 54 states with a myriad of languages, a myriad of cultures, a myriad of agendas. I mean, it just is far too complicated. And it has never, ever proven that it can be represented as a collective. There's just no evidence to support that. The AU is intentionally weak because big countries like Nigeria do not want it to be strong. And I cannot believe for a second that South Africa and Kenya and Nigeria will give up power to Botswana. I just don't see that happening. That's number one. Number two, I think the Chinese would crack that like a nut. (laughs) (laughs) It would be so easy for them to play countries off of each other. The Chinese want to get the best deal possible. Everybody wants to get the best deal possible. And if Africa starts negotiating as a block, and in order to strengthen their position, China can just start laying out contracts to individual players to break people away from the block. I mean, it would be very easy. Money will pull people away from the block very interest because they will see that their national interest is far more important than any of the collective interest, right? I mean, isn't that the way the game is played? There was one thing that we did, um, you know, that does come to mind, though, is we could say, you know, if, if China doesn't agree to a common meeting with the AU with this, um, with smaller representation, that's fine. But whereas I think, you know, we talked about the fact that maybe Japan is focusing more on, on Asia than Africa or 
that's I think that's what we were talking about. Um, yeah. At the same time, you know, there there was this. I think there was a news article talking about how Russia would like to set up a forum with the AU next year. We know that there's a Korea Africa forum. We know that Indonesia is meeting with Africa. So what happens when other external players decide that they they want to support the African Union and its interests? So that's the one thing. And I think at the same time, it is I mean, true. hold on. Are you suggesting yeah. that they're trying to use that as leverage against the Chinese who are dropping in, you know, who are doing, what, $220 billion in trade compared to what the Russians are doing in trade? I mean, there's no comparison between those two. There's no, no. no there's, that's not a threat yeah. to the Chinese that you're going to start talking to the Russians or the Indonesians. No, there's no threat. No, I don't think it's a, it's not a threat. It's 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 additional to to FOGAC. Yeah, but it's tiny in comparison, though. Tiny, Add up but all of those small players combined don't come up to a fraction of what the Chinese do in business with Africa. Yeah, right? of course, but I think of course, but I, I'm saying if there is other support for the African Union reforms, do you want to be seen as the only partner that doesn't support the reforms? And I'm not saying that these countries would. It was just a you know hypothetical sure. situation. No, no, absolutely. You know, think, yeah. I, I tend to think also that if if Africa makes it too difficult for the Chinese, and this is again this is this is the hard part. Mm. If Africa starts putting up barriers to investment, barriers to trade, to striking a harder bargain, making it more difficult, getting a better deal for Africans at the end of the day, China yeah. may just pick up its sticks and say, you know what, we can get our oil from somewhere else. There's very little scarcity left in this world. Most of what Africa sells, China can source from somewhere else. Most, except for some of the strategic minerals in the DRC. But almost everything else he can get from somewhere else, as we are seeing right now in Latin America where China's doing more trade with the Americas than it's doing with Africa. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitzChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. It's a dangerous game to play here, isn't it? I mean, if you start kind of negotiating tougher, then the Chinese go, eh. You know, we've already seen investment go down. We've already seen trade go down. And we've already seen net emigration to, to Africa from China go down. That means yeah. just interest overall is down. So but I'm not, I, I'm I not think, trying to be negative here. Go a, ahead, Kobus. There's a different way of looking at this because I don't think I don't think Africa is particularly interested in setting up any kind of barriers. Africa is is very interested in inviting as many as many people as possible. So the point of these of these like Indonesia summits and and Russia summits and so on that Yushin mentioned is not to not to supplant China or to even threaten China with being supplanted. It's to it's exactly playing into this narrative that this kind of more the merrier narrative that China is, is pushing on globalization. So it's exactly the kind of the the this all-inclusive kind of optics of FOCAC. That those optics are being repeated over and over. It's this kind of model that's that that a lot of other countries are starting to take on as well, including the EU. Um, and you know in the process I think 
the the optics of FOCAC also make opens up all of these these opportunities for other kind of external actors to to kind of to find a kind of a place with Africa. You know, so 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 Africa becomes this interesting, you know, weirdly because Africa has relatively little to offer in terms of not being a big global investor, you know, kind of of needing quite quite a lot of help. It becomes this interesting space where where different other kind of global actors can cooperate. Um, so, you know, so, so for example, I think Africa comes up quite frequently in discussions between China and the EU. Um, and it is, you know, it, it, it provides the, this kind of inclusive, you know, forum that's being created in through things like FOCAC and then other, other versions of the same kind of model being applied also opens up the, the, the potential for, for all of these, for, for other kinds of globalization. So, for example, to strengthen the relationship between the EU and China. Indeed. I, I, and, and to be fair, I actually think that the Chinese would support a stronger AU. There's no evidence to say to the other, to the contrary. The Chinese give an enormous amount of money to the African Union. They have talked about, uh, in, in, you know, helping with reforms. They're creating as helping to fund a rapid reaction force. So there is a lot of momentum, I think, from the Chinese side to support Yushan's position. I'm just a little bit skeptical that on the African side, it'll become sufficiently organized to actually mount an effective counter to the Chinese. That's where my skepticism yeah. comes. And exactly, I think, and I can understand, I suppose, your position, because whereas we're talking about the restructuring of partnership summits, we're not saying that this necessarily is going to take place. I mean, the next FOCAC, as you said, is in three weeks, and there's no way that we're going to see this kind of um, structure, you know, or proposal taking place at this upcoming meeting. So, I mean, we don't know whether this is going to take place or not. But I would also say that, you know, it's it's interesting. Again, if we're talking about FOCAC as a platform and optics, they're... they're I think there's also subtle elements that um, it's interesting look, to look at in the wording. So in the last FOCAC, when we looked at the Belt and Road and we talked about how Africa was hardly part of it, um, you know, the, the phrase only came up, I think, once in, in the documentation, saying that the African side supports the Belt and Road um, and nothing else, whereas now it's supposed to become one of the main themes of the summit or so, you know, media reports say. But what is interesting is in the last FOCAC, Agenda 2063, which is Africa's own development agenda priorities, came up numerously. And it's interesting because we could look at that as, you know, I don't necessarily think that Agenda 2063 and the BRI objectives are actually that different. And it makes you question, is China actually using the, the language that, that is of interest to Africa? Hmm, that's interesting. What was your final thoughts on that? Yeah, that's that's very interesting, and I can't I can't wait to read Yushin's PhD because she, you know, <laughs> kind of these these ideas are being developed there, and it's, it's so it's so interesting. Um, I yeah, I, I, t I tend to agree, and in in conversations with with Chinese you know officials and think tankers and so on, Agenda 2063 comes up all the time. So that's you know they they're clearly very aware of it. They've they've kind of integrated ideas from it, you know, into you know into their own thinking. Um, and it then becomes very interesting to see what the next step then becomes for Africa, you know. Um, so if, if 
you can find substantial kind of moments of, or places of, of overlap between Africa's own development agenda and something like the Belt and Road, then, you know, there's a lot of potential there for actual for actual collaboration beyond simply being an aid recipient. You know, kind of then then be becoming a more active participant is actually on the horizon, even if it is still quite far away. Um, and I think that that is interesting. I think, you know, it's um, because, you know, again, keep in mind, you know, one of one of the things that 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 Africa has, or that that's just a reality, is that Africa is the population is big and young, um, you know. So there is this youth dividend that that is, I think, is attractive for 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 a country like China with with an aging population. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see whether whether Africa can, to which extent Africa can leverage that. Well, to be fair, that youth bulge is both a blessing and a curse. Because it's enormous exactly. pressure on African policymakers to find jobs for all those young people. So, um, hey, Ko, uh, Yushan, let's let's wrap up our discussion and, and kind of take out your crystal ball that I'm sure you have there in Johannesburg. Polish it off and tell us what you think we're going to see in three weeks come out of the communique in Beijing after the FOCAC summit's done. What are your predictions based on some of the trends leading up to FOCAC? And you've been a careful student of these trends what do you think we're going to see in, in, in this FOCAC? So it will be interesting, um, I think, as I mentioned, to see how much more the Belt and Road is is included in the, the wording, whereas before, as I said, it only was mentioned once. Um, again, I think one thing that we didn't manage to touch on much was the, the aspect of wildlife and the illegal wildlife trade, where the last FOCAC we saw it being mentioned for the first time. And it'll be interesting to see how, you know, they're going to actually bring that in further and um, actually address some of the concerns that came up around 2015 and events then. So I think that will be interesting. Again, it will also be interesting to look at, I suppose, what comes off after the BRIC summit, um, because I think um, in an opinion piece that uh, Quibus and I wrote, we were talking about how the BRIC summit almost seemed like the pre-FOCAC summit, um, we could already you already saw a lot of interest in China-Africa relations and China-South Africa in media reporting around the BRIC summit. So yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how much more or you know what the language is around you know this. Let's be for globalization and not protectionism. Yushan Wu is a PhD candidate at the University of Pretoria in China-Africa relations. She is waiting to get back her PhD thesis. Very soon she will be minted with a doctorate degree, so we are very excited to for that day to happen. She's also a research associate at the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg, and she's one of the, the great minds, in my opinion, on China-Africa relations, been doing this for a long time and really just a fresh voice in this space. Yushan, you are also active on Twitter, and if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's your handle? So it's at Yushan, uh, Y-U-S-H-A-N underscore Wu, W-U. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck with your PhD, and we can't wait to talk with you after FOCAC to see how many of your predictions came true. <laughs> Thank you. Kobus, that was a show that was all over the map. I don't even know where I stand right now at the end of that discussion. Am I skeptical of what's going to happen at FOCAC? Because this is really potentially a distraction for the Chinese, given the fact that they are dealing with 
uh, maybe an existential threat is too strong, but this is a very serious challenge to their economy when they're engaged in a trade war with their largest trading partner. That being said, I'm also encouraged by what I heard from Yushan that there's real opportunity here for the Chinese to, to diversify their markets, to take advantage of this opportunity to engage Africa in a different way, to strike those deals and those relationships that are so important to international relations, things that I guess Donald Trump doesn't value anywhere near the same way that Xi Jinping does. I mean, there's no doubt that Xi Jinping likes one-on-one -on -one personal diplomacy. You can tell that by just the fact that he does a lot of it around the world. Um, that's just a fact. We can see that. So I don't know how I feel about the summit and given where we are in the time, um, because it is coming at an absolutely fascinating moment. I think one of the most interesting things of this summit is going to be exactly how it reflects the moment that it happens in. You know, so the summit generally is is a space where a lot of planning is done for the future, and so some of the, a lot of the things that that were decided and announced at the at the twenty fifteen summit only start they're only really appearing in reality around now. Um, so you know, so so it, it does cast forward in in this interesting kind of way, but at the same time, it also reflects its moment, and I think it's going to be an interesting an interesting moment to see how America is discussed. I think there's going to be a lot of subtweeting of America happening in that summit. There's going to be a lot of coded language about, you know, about about the, the specific moment, the trade war, the, you know, all of these tensions. Um, and it will be interesting to see whether the summit actually in some kind of small way provides some way of, you know, a, a kind of a glimmer of, of some kind of future global order, you know, where, where some, of the, some of these issues and imbalances are are being addressed in some kind of way, you know, because because I think, you know, Trump obviously is a very volatile personality, but to a certain extent, I think the reactions that we're seeing in the global system is also reactions simply to the the structural the, the the way that that the global trade system has been structured from the 20th century you know so some of it is is you know being exacerbated by Donald Trump but a lot of it is also is 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 resulting from some of the things that were baked in after the second world war um that would have to you know and and some of those structural those structures are coming to a crisis as well i think at the moment so yeah but don't uh, i don't know but let's not underestimate the durability let's not underestimate the durability of those structures. And no. let's not underestimate the Americans as well. One of the interesting things over the past few weeks has been the increase in volume, not necessarily substance, but in volume of calls for Washington to step up its commercial diplomacy in Africa. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. We talked a couple weeks ago about the op-ed that Senator Chris Coons from Delaware did with the U.S. Commerce Secretary. Uh, talking for an increase in funding for OPEC, the or the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, to compete with China's commercial diplomacy initiatives, which is strengthening Exim Bank and things like that. Um, during FOCAC, I can see that the United States may mount a counteroffensive on the PR side to say that they are engaged. And there, and again, we oftentimes focus so much attention on the Chinese. And by extension, think that the Chinese are popular, but it always surprises me when Pew does these public opinion surveys of different countries in Africa, how the United States still comes out on top, regardless of what Donald Trump is saying, Nambia, S-hole, all of that. Public opinion favorability of, of the United States remains quite high in Africa, higher in many cases than the Chinese, regardless of the amount of economic engagement from the Chinese. 
So that's something that we shouldn't necessarily discount, that no matter what the Chinese do, they still have a PR problem in many parts of the world, particularly in parts of Africa. The reality is, I think, one of the reasons why the Chinese are so are so popular in Africa is because they show up, like they they you know kind of they they make the effort to actually have a continued and 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 sizable presence there. Like over you know the the U.S. Is, has very strong cultural power, but but a lot of U.S. companies have been you know not particularly interested in in dealing with Africa because it's a complicated place to do business, um, and I think there's strong perceptions that Africans are too poor to buy American products, which you know. Is true in some cases, but not in all, and not for all yeah. products. And you know, so the reality is, think think of being of be of working for Nike and trying to find a person in the global north, not only in the US, but in Europe, in South Korea, in Japan, a person who has never owned a single thing with a Nike swoosh on, like. You would the a those people are rare on the ground, and they probably have some kind of reason why they why they haven't bought any Nike before. They're going to be difficult to convince. In Africa, there are millions and millions of millions of people who have never owned a single Nike thing and are dying to own their first Nike thing. Um, you know, it's not that diff- the math isn't that difficult. You know, it's it's you know it's it's mostly so far. I think there's this been, you know, there's been choices for among US entities and including a lot of big companies to simply not not bother with Africa you know and um but i think you know, there is potential there okay we could go on a lot longer on this topic but i think it's uh, we've already gone way past our normal length of our show for those of you still listening with us we are thankful that you endured with us uh, but we'd like to hear from you <laughs> what do you think is going to happen at focac you heard it from Ushan. you heard it from kobus um, I know you probably don't know where I stand on it because I've been all over the map today on the show. But, uh, I, you know, one day I feel that it's very, very positive and it's going to be great. Another day I feel very, very down and negative. So that's, I guess, what happens when you live in a place like China. But we would love to hear from you. Share us uh, with us all your thoughts. We are on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. Hey, by the way, Kobus is also on LinkedIn and he published a post uh, last week, which is now getting a whole bunch of comments and traction. Did you notice that, Cobus? Oh, yeah. You're getting great, <laughs> great following on LinkedIn. So look up Cobus. He's starting to publish more there. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. Uh, and uh, there's a great discussion. I'm posting every couple days on LinkedIn, different topics, different quotes, and trying to provoke a different conversation about China-Africa relations. So it's very, very lively and would love for you to weigh in on today's discussion and anything else that's on your mind ahead of FOCAC. So Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.